Before we begin listening to God's word through the preaching this morning, God, we thank you for the the good news of Scripture. We thank you for those who are gathered together this morning to enjoy fellowship, to enjoy worshiping our holy God. May you be ever present among us, Lord, in a way that we can sense and know, that we would know the truth and the truth would set us free, Lord, that you would reign supreme over Oasis Church. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let's begin our message this morning, Unwrapping Joy. Did you know that at least a few of the songs or hymns that are considered to be Christmas songs are not really particularly Christmas songs? I want to mention two of them this morning. One is the song we first sang this morning, Joy to the World. It was not written as a Christmas song. It was written by Isaac Watts as part of a collection of hymns on the Psalms. And Joy to the World is a song written with Psalm 98 in mind, which we will be going through together shortly. Another song that many of us would readily associate with Christmas is the Hallelujah Chorus from Handel's Messiah, which was a great masterpiece. The Messiah... In fact, it's one of the most amazing pieces of music ever composed in modern times, in my opinion. If you've never listened to the full, uh, you've probably heard the two most commonly uh, played choruses from it, but it's actually an entire uh, orchestration. It's beautiful. The entire composition is the story of Jesus the Messiah. Beginning with Isaiah, the first part of the Messiah is comfort my people. Um, And then it covers his whole life and what is still yet to come. And there is one Christmas song in the Messiah. But it's not the Hallelujah Chorus. It's for unto us. For unto us a child is born, right? Unto us. I won't sing it. Okay. And that, of course, fits perfectly in with uh, our concentration during this season, sort of on the birth of Christ. But the Hallelujah Chorus, like Joy to the World, They're both not about the birth of Jesus. However, they are still quite fitting for Christmas time and the entire year. In fact, we could sing Joy to the World on Easter, and it would be perfect in context with with, uh, the Resurrection Sunday service. So just as the virgin birth of Christ uh, is focused on at Christmas time, but we also focus on the second coming of Christ, too. And that is because of what we often call this season is what? Advent season, right? We call these the Advent candles. What does Advent mean? It means arrival. And so we lit the joy candle earlier, and we've spoken of how these candles are to kind of prepare us in thinking about Jesus. Not preparation for him to be born, because he's already done that. Not to prepare us for his death on the cross. He's already done that. Not to prepare us for the resurrection. He has accomplished that too. All of these things Jesus did to save sinners. Advent, which means arrival, is to prepare our hearts for the arrival of Christ, not a baby, but a returning king. And since this is the Advent season, and we are preparing for a coming king, Jesus, These two songs are perfect in this season because both of them celebrate the return of Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to look not to those hymns, but to the scriptures that inspired them. 
Joy to the World is inspired by Psalm 98, as I mentioned, and the Hallelujah Chorus is actually from Revelation 19. So first we're going to look at Psalm 98. This is the only psalm, by the way, that the title just says a psalm. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and with the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and all who dwell in it. Let the lit rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Charles Spurgeon, in his great commentary on the Psalms, had so many great quotes about this passage that I was tempted to just read straight from him and then sit down. However, I'm not going to do that. But I'm going to give you some pearls from Spurgeon about this passage. Spurgeon called this passage a royal psalm. Some of you live in Royal Palm Beach. This is a royal psalm, a coronation hymn said Spurgeon, proclaiming the conquering Messiah as monarch over the nations with blasts of trumpets, clapping of hands, and celebration of triumphs. And this psalm is just nine verses which are set in three stanzas. See, I did pass school. The first, one to three, is the subject of praise is announced. So in verses 1 to 3, the subject of the praise is announced. In verses 4 to 6, the manner of that praise is prescribed. And in verses 7 to 9, the universal extent of it is proclaimed. And who is the subject of the praise? Well, since David is most likely the author of this psalm, we can say that David identifies the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, in the first line, as the one worthy of a new song. And in verse 2, again, he says, the Lord has made known his salvation. Quoting Spurgeon again, Jesus, our King, has lived a marvelous life, died a marvelous death, risen by a marvelous resurrection, and ascended marvelously into heaven. By his divine power, he has set forth the Holy Spirit doing marvels. And by that same sacred energy, his disciples have also wrought marvelous things and astounded all the earth. Let's look at those first three verses again. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. For he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So sing to the Lord a new song, for he's done marvelous things. 
He's worked salvation. He has made this known. He made it known through the prophets, and now he's making it known through Jesus and through his apostles. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. I'm going to quote one more time from Spurgeon, maybe two more times. Spurgeon wrote this. He said, the word righteous is the favorite word of the apostle to the Gentiles. By that he means Paul. He loves to dwell on the Lord's method of making men righteous and vindicating divine justice by the atoning blood. What songs ought we to render who belong to a once heathen race for that blessed gospel which is the power of God unto salvation? For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. This is no close secret. It is clearly taught in Scripture and has been plainly preached among the nations. What was hidden in the types is openly shown in the gospel. So according to the psalmist, he has also remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. And all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. By the way, this psalm does tie into the Christmas story in another way. You see, in her doxology of praise and wonder before God, Mary, in what some people call the Magnificat, is believed to have been quoting from this very psalm. Mary recognized that prophecy was being fulfilled in her life and through her. And she said this in Luke 1, 46-55. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation." He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. What a beautiful song just pouring out of this girl, young virgin girl who, who has been selected by God for this very special task. And when Mary said, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, she is clearly referring to Psalm 98.3. And not only did Mary refer to this psalm, it seems Zechariah did as well in his song of praise at the birth of his son, John the Baptist, which you can read in Luke chapter 1, verse 72 in particular. He says, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. This is very important for us to understand that both Mary 
and Zechariah, inspired by the Holy Spirit to pour out this praise, and who had both received direct revelation from God through the angel Gabriel, both referred to God, keeping his promise, remembering his mercy toward his people Israel. And because of this, and through Israel, he would provide salvation to the ends of the earth, even beyond the people of Israel, to which this Gentile says, praise the Lord. So then, because of this, we are commanded by God's word to make a joyful noise. Let's go back to verses 4 to 7. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, which also can mean harp. The lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. Make a joyful noise. Now, this doesn't mean we should try to make uh, we should make noise and not try to make it sound good, by the way. But let it be known that if you have not been gifted with the ability to sing in tune, then sing anyway. And here we see the song should be joyous and praises shall be sung. Pity the one who never learns to open their mouth to praise God. What are they missing? Cannot be described. Studies have shown that singing can do the health of a world of good, and so much more for the one who sings with gusto their praises to God. It is impossible for us to get too excited or to use instruments, whether the trumpet and the horn, too joyously. We can't do it. And not only is all of our power required to make this praise, even so the created world itself must join in so that the river and the seas and all the world must be part of this glorifying praise to our God. In verses 7 to 9, he says, Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the world the world and all those who dwell in it, let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Note that last verse. Don't miss it. He comes to judge the earth. Here you can gaze at the world around you and be at peace even if the world isn't. You can see injustice and know that ultimately every sin will be accounted for in the books of heaven and the unrepentant will be judged. Those who do not cast their sins upon Christ will bear those sins, and for all eternity they will suffer the mighty wrath of God Almighty, and it will be a terrible thing, an unbearable thing. He comes to judge the earth, and he will judge it with righteousness. That means his judgments will be right, they will be perfect. No, not one sin will slide. Not one blasphemy not one act of adultery, not one who bears false witness, not one instance of stealing or dishonoring parents will be ignored by this perfect judge. The books will be open, and all of our sins will be set before us to be judged by God. And this should greatly concern you if you do not know if your sins are atoned for or covered by the blood of Jesus. There's only one way to come out of the day of the Lord without suffering the consequences of your sin. Jesus died on the cross and suffered the wrath of God on our behalf. 
To have this death be the atonement for your sins, you must flee to Christ. You must be terrified of the judgment of God without an advocate who will stand in your defense. Jesus is the only way, the only advocate, the only sacrifice. He can be your substitute. You and I broke God's law, and we deserve eternal punishment. But Jesus died to turn the wrath of God away from those who put faith in him, and he takes it upon himself. And he is coming again. So this psalm is not just about the birth of Jesus, nor is the song, Joy to the World, about the birth of Jesus. Rather, it's about the Jesus who reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords. So from now on, when you sing that great song, Joy to the World, remember what its meaning is. Yes, there was joy in the announcement of the angels who came to the shepherds. But this song, Joy to the World, is about the true and final joy for the one rescued by God from sin. And I'm going to read the lyrics for you. I know we sang it a moment ago. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her King, capital K. Let every heart prepare him room in heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing. Joy or peace to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy, repeat, repeat the sounding joy. Let No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love and wonders of his love. Now, let's consider that other song for a moment, Handel's Messiah, the Hallelujah Chorus. Legend has it that when a certain king was present at a performance of Handel's Messiah, he was so moved by the time the Hallelujah Chorus played, he stood... And so it has become a tradition for people to stand at this chorus when they're listening to the Messiah. And it's quite appropriate, by the way, for a mere earthly king to show reverence to the Messiah. Now here's the words from the Hallelujah Chorus. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Hallelujah, hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Hallelujah, hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Hallelujah, hallelujah. If you think there's too much repeating, you're not going to like heaven. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever, and he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah, and he shall reign forever and ever. King of kings and Lord of lords, hallelujah, hallelujah, King of kings and Lord of lords, and he shall reign forever and ever, and he shall reign forever and ever, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Handel was a true believer who wanted to honor Christ with his music, and nothing honors Christ more than declaring the words of Scripture and sincerely affirming the deity of Christ, the majesty, and Handel, in my opinion, did this wonderfully, and I recommend, if you ever have the time, to listen to the whole thing. And if I remember right, it's about two hours long. Listen with the script nearby, because you might have a hard time understanding all of it, because it's sung kind of... Like opera people. They don't always sing for the rest of us can hear it or understand it. 
But the entire thing, every word of it, is directly from Scripture, which is what makes it so wonderful. Now, in this portion, he's quoting from Revelation chapter 19 in two spots in Revelation 19. The first one is verse 6, where John writes, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty pills of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. And then in verses 11 to 16, he writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, that just means crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Our theme today is unwrapping joy. For the one who knows Christ as Savior and Lord, our joy should be ever-present. It should never be wrapped up. That is because for the one in Christ, our joy is not only in being saved from our sins, but we have joy in living in expectation of the final completed work of Christ when we come to that judgment day and all our sins are bared before God, our awful, disgusting sins those sins that break our relationship with God and show our unfaithfulness. And for those in Christ, no matter how severe those sins are, Jesus himself will stand as our advocate. The judge himself has already paid the fine and the cost that we deserve. When we put faith in Christ, it's a done deal. It will happen. If we have sincerely repented, that is, turned from our wicked ways and gone to Christ for forgiveness and mercy and have declared him to be Lord and Savior, the work on the cross has already finished the job. Yet we struggle still in the battle of sin. We struggle still in coping with a world that's out of control. We see death and destruction and blasphemy, and yet we can have joy. In fact, it's our duty to have joy. John Piper wrote a great book called The Dangerous Duty of Delight, where he makes the case from Scripture, we're obligated to have joy, to have proper emotions. A Christian, no matter what is going on in their own life or in the world, ought to have joy, and that joy is rooted in the promises of God. If you are in Christ, then part of that hope is Revelation 19, where we just read. And also in there, it talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb, where the saints of God will be gathered in one of the greatest celebrations ever. And if you, like me, are moved when you hear Handel's Messiah, how much more will you be moved to be part of the chorus that Revelation 19 speaks of? That will truly be the most amazing time of praise as we gather together, seeing our salvation truly, knowing God without any hindrance of the sinful flesh, joining together in the chorus of praise and worship, what joy. And if you, my friend, are not a believer, and you're wondering if you can join into that joy, yes, you can. 
But what does it take for you to know this? It's very simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You see, it isn't just saying, I hope it's true. I hate the idea of hell, so I'll hedge my bets and say a prayer to Jesus. No, the Bible teaches that only true faith, faith that really believes is saving faith. Lots of people over the decades have said a prayer with a friend or repeated the prayer of a preacher that told them to repeat something, and they are no more saved than Judas. I realize this may offend, but it's true. I see no sinner's prayer in the Bible. Nowhere are evangelists told to have someone repeat a prayer. There is no magic in a prayer. No prayer has the power to save. It is faith alone in Christ alone. It is realizing that without Christ, you are utterly lost for all eternity. So no prayer that I could have you repeat will have any effect whatsoever on your salvation. But you say to me, I don't have the faith you're talking about. I'd like to. But I do not yet believe, and yet I'm concerned about my eternal state. Well, the good news for you is this. You cannot produce the faith in and of yourself anyway. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The faith is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. You say you don't have the faith? Ask for it. Ask God to give you the faith. If there is any appropriate sinner's prayer, it is this. God, please give me the faith to believe. That is because, my friends, that Scripture teaches us that no one comes to God except through Christ and faith in him, and no one comes to faith in Christ unless they're given the gift of faith, because no one comes to me, Jesus said, unless the Father draws him. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of the works so that no one may boast. Now, you may have heard many boasters in church. If you've been in any church for any amount of time, you've met some. They seem to think that because they have faith, they've accomplished something that the unbeliever hasn't. Anyone who thinks that needs to repent now. That is because anyone who is saved is saved by grace alone. Faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. And this is not to bring glory to oneself, because all glory goes to God. Soli Deo Gloria, the glory, for the glory of God alone. God is glorified when a sinner repents. He is glorified when saving faith has effect to the glory of God alone. So salvation comes from faith alone in Christ alone, by grace alone, and is for the glory of God alone. And how do we learn where that faith must lie in Scripture alone? Scripture is the only source we can trust completely for salvation. The Christ we believe in must be the, the Christ of the Bible. The Jesus described by Scripture is the only Jesus that saves not the Jesus of the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Seventh-day Adventists or any other Jesus. Even the Muslims believe in Jesus, but they don't believe in him as God. Beware of many false teachings and false teachers who would tell you to trust them so that you do not need to re rely on your own study of Scripture. Why do I repeat the mantra again and again? I know we have guests here. If you've guessed, you're hearing it the first time. The people of Oasis, you've heard this many times. My mantra, read the Bible for yourself. Do not take my word for it. See to it that you study the Bible to learn what is true. And yet, many have said, we don't really need so much the Bible. Or as false teacher Andy Stanley said, we can unhitch the Old Testament from the New. Why do these false teachers tell people they don't need the whole Bible? Could it be that they're self-serving and care little for the eternal state of the people they preach to? If you are a believer, keep studying Scripture 
so that you can learn God's plan and learn to live as he would have you live, so that you may become one who can teach others. It should be the goal of every believer to become a teacher of God's word to someone, either someone in your own family or whoever it might be. And if you are without faith, then read the Bible, listen to preaching, and plead with God to give you that faith. Because faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. The only way to come to Christ is to hear from God's word, Scripture alone. And God's Holy Spirit speaks through that word. Hearing from Scripture alone for the one being drawn to God by, himself, to, by God to himself leads to faith alone in Christ alone. And this is by grace alone. And it is for the glory of God alone. Will you not put your faith in Jesus today and give glory to God for the great act of salvation he's done for us. And so that way you can live the life of joy that I and other believers have been blessed with. Not because we figured something out that you didn't figure out, but because God drew us to himself through his word. And that's where we get our faith. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your message this morning. Lord, I pray for those who are already believers in Jesus Christ and have that salvation. May you increase their assurance in that salvation today. And may you increase their joy in knowing that Jesus, the righteous judge, will return and reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. And Lord, as we see the earth and the world falling apart around us, may we rely on that. And know that your word is true and that you will complete all that you've promised. And Lord, for those who have not yet put faith in Jesus, I pray that you would give them that faith, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would convict them of their sins and make them see the need for a Savior so that they have nowhere to run but to Jesus who will save. For all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So, Lord, for any unbelievers here today, please do the work that you only can do through your Holy Spirit, drawing them to yourself, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.